Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks. Cloud generation firewalls engineered for today's modern globally dispersed networks. Learn more at barracuda.com firewalls. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And by Paint Care. Through Paint Care, paint manufacturers make it easier for households and businesses to recycle leftover house paint, with over 800 convenient drop-off locations around California. On today's California Report magazine, recreational pot is now legal here, but access isn't easy for all, especially kids in public school who rely on cannabis medications. And this Sunday, the music industry gathers for the Grammy Awards. And an Occidental College professor is hoping to take one or maybe two home. One of the greatest compliments I've ever had is someone came up to me and said, your music sounds like Radiohead meeting Aaron Copeland. Plus, we sniff out a tiny perfume museum in Berkeley. Perfume has a very tangled history. There is kind of no civilization that didn't, you know, revere and want scented materials. And Disaster provides inspiration to a songwriter on the Central Coast. I'm Susie Racho, in for Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. The new year brought Californians' legal access to recreational marijuana. For adults, of course, 21 and over. But kids who rely on medications made from cannabis still face barriers. Cannabis isn't allowed at school. Reporter Lee Romney introduces us to a Santa Rosa family trying to change that. Their young daughter depends on medicine from the marijuana plant to help with seizures. Mom, you here? Mom, Four-year-old Brooke Adams is taking her morning medicine. Her mom, Jana, squirts it into her mouth as Brooke sits on the kitchen counter. It's a cannabis tincture with a high ratio of CBD, one of the cannabinoids in the marijuana plant that doesn't make you high. Brooke has pale red hair that's pulled into pigtails. She's wearing raspberry-colored eyeglasses, and she loves hugs. She has Dravet syndrome, a rare and severe genetic disorder that causes seizures and developmental delays. Jana says Brooke had her first seizure at three and a half months. Every time we'd have to call 911 to have her ambulanced to the ER to load her up with all kinds of 
drugs. And her longest one was three hours. By the time she turned one, Brooke was taking a long list of prescribed medications meant to prevent seizures. But Jana says they didn't work for her daughter. Stopping the seizures once they started, that required another drug known as a rescue medication. Whenever they administered it, she would be intubated because her breathing would slow down so much. Now, Brooke takes that daily CBD tincture and a rescue drug made of cannabis oil that's high in THC, the best-known cannabinoid in the marijuana plant. It's been life-changing. Often stopping the seizures within three minutes, Janice says. But placing Brooke in preschool was tough. Just before the summer of 2016, the Rincon Valley Union School District told Jana, those vials of THC oil that are always with Brooke, they're not allowed at school. They said, here's all the things that you could, you know, have, but, well, she can't be on campus, so you'll have to just have her at home. Homeschooled. But that's not what Jana thought was most appropriate for Brooke. I said, you know, she needs to go to private school if you can't have her. The district agreed. They paid for that placement and a lot of other accommodations. Speech therapy, OT therapy, PT therapy, adaptive PE. And Yolanda Brindis, a one-on-one nurse. We'll see you later, okay? Well, I don't want to school. No, I don't want to school. The district also sends a van to take Brooke and Yolanda to a private preschool across town. You want to ride the bus? Bus. Are you ready, Missy? But Jana knew they'd soon face a bigger hurdle. Getting Brooke into kindergarten this coming fall. And, I mean, that's why we're pushing to get to Sacramento and get something passed before the fall, because I don't know where her placement will be in the fall if she can't go to public school. That something is a law, one that would allow Brooke and other kids like her to be in public school with their cannabis meds. Brooke's parents are working with the school district to find a state lawmaker willing to author a bill. Kathy Myers is the assistant superintendent for student services for the Rincon Valley Union School District. When we're looking at um, the federal law that surrounds and protects children who are identified as children that have special needs, we are required to offer them a free and appropriate public education, and we feel as though our hands are tied. Myers connected with the office of local state senator Mike McGuire to see if California could do what a handful of other states have already done. Maine, New Jersey, and Colorado have all changed state law to require school districts to accommodate students who have medical marijuana recommendations so a parent, legal guardian, and in some cases a caregiver can administer cannabis medication at school. There's also similar legislation pending in Washington state, and Myers has started to hear from other California districts with similar dilemmas who also want to change state law. There's another problem, though. Federal law, which we cannot have drugs, cannabis, anything within a 1,000 feet of a school district or school. School districts risk losing federal funding if they violate that. Those other states, they're taking a gamble that the feds won't come after them. A federal judge in Illinois recently encouraged state officials to consider crafting a similar law after the state attorney general agreed not to prosecute school officials for giving an 11-year-old girl her cannabis meds on campus. And a 12-year-old girl who uses medical cannabis for her seizures is among five plaintiffs who are suing Attorney General Jeff Sessions in federal court in New York. They argue the Controlled Substances Act, which classifies cannabis as illegal, infringes upon a whole bunch of constitutional rights. There's a hearing in that long-shot case next month. For four-year-old Brooke Adams, just being able to go to school has been huge. 
I'm not going to smell that, but I'll use it to write. Brooke and her nurse get to preschool right in time for speech therapy. What color is that? What color? Red. Good job. It's a red yo-yo. Then, Brooke joins the other kids for circle time. What are you going to do with your battery, Andrew? Throw it in the trash can. Throw it in the trash can? Yeah. Okay. Getting Brooke into preschool has immersed her in a whole world of other kids. But what matters most now for mom, Jana Adams, is what comes next. I mean, my whole goal is to get her to public school by kindergarten. At what point did you realize, okay, we're going to be the family that hopefully gets a bill passed in California? Uh, pretty much when they said that she couldn't go to school. Colorado's school cannabis legislation is called Jack's Law. New Jersey's was inspired by a girl named Jenny and Maine's by Cindy May, also diagnosed with Dravet syndrome. So if California winds up passing legislation too, maybe it'll be called Brooks Law. For the California Report, I'm Lee Romney in Santa Rosa. What does Adam Schoenberg have in common with Body Count, Kendrick Lamar, and the cast of Hello, Dolly? He's a Grammy nominee. The 37-year-old classical composer is up for awards this weekend in two categories, including Best Contemporary Classical Composition for this work, Picture Studies. You may not have heard of him, but Schoenberg's work is so popular, he's made the national list of the top 10 most performed living composers, twice. From Los Angeles, Peter Gilstrap brings us this profile. Walk into the leafy, zen-like courtyard of the small music building at Occidental College, past the tiered, cascading fountain, and it's not hard to find Adam Schoenberg's corner studio. Just follow the sounds of the piano. When he's not writing symphonies, Schoenberg is an assistant professor here. Though he's actually a very distant relation to George Gershwin, his music is quite close in spirit, and it's drawn comparisons to his iconic relative and many other big names. Not all of them are from the classical music world. One of the greatest compliments I've ever had is someone came up to me and said, your music sounds like Radiohead meeting Aaron Copeland. But yeah, I mean, the music, I, I embody the music of our time and put a little twist to it. Schoenberg began composing professionally in 2006, back when he was still a doctoral student at Juilliard. Since then, his work has been consistently commissioned and performed internationally. Much of his work has a cinematic feel.
I was drawn to soundtracks, but we didn't really own soundtracks. So it was just, my father was, you know, was also a film composer, and so when we would go see movies, we just always stayed to the end of the credits. And we would always listen. We'd be the last people in the theater, and that was just how it was. Schoenberg is prolific, but his creative process begins with just sitting down and winging it. I will improvise for hours upon hours, record my improvisations, and then I'll extract a chord progression. It could be just a note, it could be a melody, it could be a texture, it could be a rhythm. Of course he's got computers and keyboards to capture those nuggets, but inspiration won't always wait until a man's in his studio. Right now, I basically record in my voice memo on my iPhone. Would you be willing to play some of the stuff that you have in your voice memo? Oh, sure. I don't know what, I don't know what this is. We're going to find out. There's my kid in the background. From that humble warbling sprang the opening line of Schoenberg's upcoming violin concerto, Orchard in Fog. It'll have its premiere February 10th with the San Diego Symphony featuring world-class concert violinist Anne Akiko Myers. But it's still very much a work in progress and will be down to the wire. He was telling me about it and was saying, I will be in my hotel room in San Diego making changes to this. Oh, God, I don't want to hear that. Please, I really wish you didn't tell me that. <laughs> ah. But Myers, the consummate pro, will no doubt come through in the clinch. And after all, she commissioned the work. She's a big fan. His music is easily accessible, and I mean that in the best sense. Like a lot of other music can be non-transparent, and you feel like you almost need a degree in some kind of science to understand what is going on, but there's none of that with Adam's music. You know, it just speaks to you, and it speaks simply and beautifully. I think in the 21st century, we're sort of at this renaissance. Every kid who gets a laptop can write a track and then upload it on YouTube and say, I wrote this. And so at that point, you have to figure out your voice, who you are, what it is you want to say, and then how are you going to distinguish yourself? But that's the lifelong journey, I suppose. At this point, Schoenberg is well on the road, and the next stop is New York City for the Grammy Awards. After that, it's back to the piano. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Los Angeles. Do you know what Moringa is? Well, it's a hearty, fast-growing tree with bright green leaves and long seed pods. Health nuts who eat the powder from those ground-up pods say it's packed with nutrition. It can be a little bit bitter, but it's also earthy. It tastes a little bit like a mild arugula flavor when it's fresh. When I first put it in my mouth, I thought it tasted sort of like a raw peanut, and then that turned extremely bitter, and then that turned sweet. Moringa has been a food source for centuries in countries such as India and the Philippines. Food trend watchers think it could be the next big superfood in the U.S. KQED's Katrina Schwartz takes us to Fresno, where Hmong farmers are poised to capitalize on the coming demand. 
So everything I can see right now is Moringa? Yes, correct. Wow. Okay, cool. Let's go check it out. The thick, low-lying Central Valley fog is just starting to burn off when I first set eyes on Kaying Mua's Moringa farm. So uh, right now, they are dormant at this time. Because it's winter, not their growing season. Moringa doesn't like the cold, a problem for farmers here. The rows and rows of trees I see are short, only a few feet high, and they're covered in thick white plastic to keep the roots warm. And in the March, it depends the weather. So we're going to open and then going to shoot like it's crazy. Moringa is kind of a magical tree. It doesn't need much water, flourishes in poor sandy soil, loves the heat, and grows incredibly fast. They will shoot one inch per night. In one summer, Moringa can grow from a seed to an eight-foot-tall tree, bushy with green leaves. When the pods mature, they can get up to three feet long and look like super-sized fava beans. Kaying's got a partner in this Moringa adventure, her son Sam. And so I, I love working with, you know, these type of projects with my mom. Growing Moringa is just one of the many mother-son projects they've tackled over the years. They've grown rare flowers and hit the road selling Hmong crafts. But Sam says Moringa is different. It could be a game-changer for their small operation. And we're trying to pioneer something that's never been done before. The Muas already distribute fresh Moringa leaves to Asian markets around California, but they're looking to cash in on a much bigger market. Hi. I'm looking for Moringa. Can you show Moringa. me where that is? Be Alive Vitamins is a health food shop in Fresno. Owner Monica Wilson says she's carried Moringa for a few years now, but notices the demand increasing. People are using it for anything from um, blood sugar management to keeping their cholesterols at a healthy level. Um, it's very high in antioxidants. Scientists are still studying the many nutritional claims about Moringa, but early evidence is promising. It's packed with protein, vitamins A and C, calcium, iron, and zinc. It's considered a superfood. Wilson imports her Moringa from India, one of the biggest sources, but she'd rather get it locally. Traceability of our product is really important, so the closer the better. And Wilson will soon get closer to Fresno farmers, like Kaying Mua, through a UC Extension project. It's Lorena Ramos's job to reach out to potential Moringa customers. I think my, my biggest pitch is supporting our local farmers and also buying Moringa that is fresh, good quality. Her team is helping farmers learn to dry, powder, and store Moringa. Kaying and her son Sam are their star students. They're ahead of the game because they built a greenhouse to give them a jump start on the growing season. Oh, wow. Oh, it's a lot warmer in here. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. The temperature in here never drops below 70 degrees, even at nighttime. So look at what we have today. So it's good. It's good news. Spindly moringa trees graze the 18-foot-high roof in this balmy greenhouse, a peaceful sauna on a chilly day. In the greenhouse, I can say the seed from the tree that I like to plant for the next year. Kaying eats moringa every day and believes in its healing powers. She takes pride in what she grows and all the creative solutions she's found along the way. Picking and packing fresh moringa was a real puzzler. Then my mom finally figured it out. And so she's a pretty smart lady. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to have your son say that about you. <laughs> oh, he always say, and everything we true. <laughs> when I ask them who's in charge of the operation, Kaying laughs and says, Sam handles the financial stuff. 
but when it comes to growing things, she's the boss. For the California Report, I'm Katrina Schwartz in Fresno. The Thomas Fire roared across Ventura and Santa Barbara counties last month and destroyed more than a 1,000 homes. But it also provided artistic inspiration for a musician from the seaside town of Carpinteria who started writing a song about the disaster and about his community's response. But then mudslides devastated neighboring Montecito. More than 20 people were killed. He kept writing playing multiple instruments, recording his vocals, and mixing the song in his bedroom studio. Now the piece is finished, and he's sharing it here for the first time. All right, sweet. I'm Jason Paris. I live in Carpinteria, California, and I am 21 years old. I started writing this song probably two or three weeks ago uh, when we were experiencing all of the crazy fire stuff that was going on. Now the flood... People have lost loved ones and all the houses destroyed and like cars being like washed from the mountains to the beach. There's no denying how dark of a time it is. But I really hope that this song shows that there's some light in the darkness right now. Then everything around us started crashing down. I'll never know all the reasons why life's such a wild. My house was right below the mountain that was completely on fire. I would just ask myself the question, if I were to tell the world one thing right now, what would it be? That's how I started writing this song. When everything falls apart, we come together. The first thing that came to me in this song was actually the title, it's We Come Together. I was just thinking about how I felt like everyone was on opposite teams before all this stuff happened. And then when like the fire struck and all these horrible things happened where we needed to come together and pick each other up, uh, when everything falls apart, we come together. We come together. If you go to Montecito right now, you'll just see people who are out there like shoveling mud. They're there for no reason other than just to shovel mud for people that they don't even know, they might never meet, you know, but they want to do it because they want to love on each other. But let's choose the call to bring light into the darkest times. Everything that's happened has completely changed my life and, and how I'll handle things in the future. We come together. I feel like every time that I go through something, I'll remember this and how the Santa Barbara community has dealt with it. And I'll remember how important it is that we stick together and we lift each other up in times of crisis. Yeah, we're making beauty from ashes. That's 21-year-old singer-songwriter Jason Paris of Carpinteria talking about the song he wrote, inspired by last month's Central Coast wildfires and the landslides that followed. Jason's story was produced by our L.A. Bureau Chief, Stephen Cuevas.
And finally today, we head to the city of Berkeley. From city council meetings to yoga classes, a lot of places there are fragrance-free, which means you're not supposed to wear any scented lotions or perfumes. So it's a little ironic that Berkeley is home to a new museum dedicated to perfume. We sent Bianca Taylor to sniff it out. The first thing I notice about the Aftel archive of Curious Scents is that it doesn't actually smell. I think, you know, people are worried that it will be very smelly like a department store. That's Mandy Aftel. She's a perfume maker who works with natural oils and author of the bestseller Essence and Alchemy. She founded this small museum in the garage behind her house in Berkeley, just over the fence from the restaurant Chez Panisse. As she shows me around, she's practically vibrating with energy. Her all-black outfit is punctuated by her oversized purple glasses and cherry red hair. A lot of people don't know the difference between natural and synthetic aromas, and I only work with naturals. She's made nearly all of the 300 scents in the museum herself. She says perfume is more than just Chanel. Scented materials have been used in spiritual traditions from Buddhism to Catholicism and Native American rituals. Perfume has a very tangled history. There is kind of no civilization that didn't, you know, revere and want scented materials. It turns out a lot of civilizations wanted one smell in particular, and Mandy has it at the museum. It's in a tiny bottle labeled Smell Me, underneath a huge wooden carving of a whale. I take a whiff and ask Mandy to describe what she thinks it smells like. It's like, it's ambery, but it's very kind of shimmery. It's got a kind of, tr- like a sparkly quality to the smell, if that makes any sense. And it's soft and deep, but also light and kind of feels like it reflects light. It's, it's a kind of wonder. This kind of flowery language sounds like how someone would describe a fine wine or gourmet chocolate. To me, the thing we're smelling right now reminds me of a wet beach towel. It's ambergris, which is essentially sperm whale poop that's been used in perfumes for centuries. Not exactly my thing, but I do love smelling the cardamom and jasmine oils. Mandy says this museum is all about touching, looking, and smelling. And so it just brings you a lot closer to nature and how incredible nature is with smells. And there is nature here. A taxidermied beaver sits in one corner next to a small replica of a musk deer. People made perfume from the oils of these animals. One of my favorite discoveries is a wooden chest of drawers filled with some of the raw materials that go into making perfume, like vetiver grass, juniper berries, cedar wood, and seashells. But the museum's main attraction is the perfume organ. It looks like a pipe organ, but it's not a musical instrument. It's kind of like a giant spice rack with three long rows holding hundreds of tiny glass bottles filled with colored oil. And then you get a little packet with three scent strips. Every visitor to the museum gets three strips of heavy paper to dip into these bottles. I test out a bottle of poplar buds, which looks like egg yolk and smells like apricots and baby poop. Oh my God. I kind of like, I kind of like everything, so I have to say. Before she turned to the world of perfume, Mandy worked as a therapist. She thinks the connection between smell and memory is so strong that visitors can be transported to another place after smelling something at the perfume organ. Because it takes them back right away. Like, people have a smell, and they have a memory, and it just fuses together 
right then, kind of like music does for people. The museum is only open Saturdays, and Mandy says people visit from all over the world. But talking with her, I get the feeling she would have been happy to create this museum even if no one showed up. For The California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor in Berkeley. And that's The California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director this week is Nina Thorson. The technical producer is Seal Muller, with additional engineering from Howard Gelman and Katie McMurrin. Victoria Mullion is our senior editor. Our online producer is David Marks. And our social media producer is Miranda Leitzinger. Today, we welcome our new intern, Nadine Sabai. The California Report's editorial team includes Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Susie Racho. Sasha Coca returns to the host chair next week. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at Irvine.org. Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction, together building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.